Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone. And today we're in week four of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today we're going to be discussing question 9, 10, and 11. Now this week we're still in the guilt section of the catechism, or you could say we're still in the portion that helps us understand man's sin and misery. Question number two that we looked at several weeks ago asked us, how many things are necessary for you to know so that you may live and die happily in the comfort of Christ? And the answer really comes to us in three different ways. Number one, we must know the greatness of our sin and misery. Number two, we must know how we are redeemed from our sin and misery. And number three, we must know how to be thankful to God for that redemption. In other words, we need to understand our guilt, we need to learn of God's grace, and we need to express gratitude for it. Now, the first part of this catechism is focusing in on the first part of that answer, the guilt part. And over the last two weeks, we've been exploring our guilt and misery And this week, we're going to wrap up that section. Now, I'm looking forward to moving on to the grace section. But before we do, there are a few more truths that we need to learn. So let's focus in. Let's spend some time on questions 9, 10, and 11. Now, like last week, the first question that we're going to look at today, question number nine, it follows naturally from what we read in question eight. Let's recall that in question eight, we learned that because of our sinful nature, we are totally unable to do any good. The corruption of sin has reached so deep into our heart that it leaves a stain on everything we think and everything we say and everything we do. And yes, we are still capable of doing things that culturally we understand to be good. But the Bible helps us to see that even our quote-unquote good deeds are tainted by sin because they do not come from a heart of faith and they do not aim at the glory of God. Now, if you're thinking that this whole thing through and, and, and you're looking at this, then you will probably see that the answer to question number eight raises a whole host of follow-up questions, right? And we looked at some of those questions last week, but one of them comes at us in question number nine. And here's the question that comes out of that discussion on number eight. The question is this, does not God then wrong man by requiring of him in his law that which he cannot perform? Now, that's really a great question. And here's what it's getting at. If in question number eight, the answer is right, that we are unable to do any good thing, then why, why does God hold us responsible to do the good thing that he requires of us in his law? Does that then make God wrong? If we are unable to do any good, then is God unreasonable to require us to do good by keeping his law? And is he unjust to hold us accountable for something that we are unable to do? Think of it in this way. If I were to tell my children to build me a stairway to heaven, would it be reasonable of me to actually expect them to succeed? And would it be just of me to punish them when they fail to obey? Right? The point of question nine is to ask, is it fair to demand someone of someone what they are incapable of doing? And can God justly require our obedience when at the same time we are unable to provide that obedience and he knows it? Now, this question is getting at the character of God. It's asking whether or not God is truly holy, whether or not God is truly just in what he requires of us. 
And I'm sure that at some level we've asked this question or another one just like it. It's a different slant on the common question asked when discussing the problem of evil. You've probably heard this. If God is all-powerful, capable of doing everything that he pleases, and if God is all-loving, caring even for the smallest of his creatures, then why does he allow suffering and evil to exist in the world? The thoughts and ideas behind this question are aimed to try and reconcile two things that seem incompatible. It seems incompatible that God would truly love man and be able to help man, but would then, in fact, allow bad things to happen anyway. Now, let me be honest. The the problem of evil is a massive subject and one that has been written about extensively by men and women far more capable than myself. I'm only using it as an example to show that in question nine, a similar dilemma is being presented. It seems incompatible that God would give us a law and demand that we keep a law that we cannot keep and he knows we cannot keep. So does this mean that God is wrong? Well, here's the answer to question number nine from the Heidelberg Catechism. The answer is no. God did not wrong man. God created humans with the ability to keep the law. They, however, tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience, robbed themselves and all their descendants of these gifts. That's a strong answer, but it does accord, I believe, with what the scriptures teach. For instance, Ecclesiastes 7.29 says that God made man upright but they have sought out many evil schemes. The response to this question is to say that God's not to blame for man's inability. Man is responsible. Heidelberg reminds us that when Adam and Eve were faced with the opportunity to obey God, they chose to rebel. And in their rebellion, they doomed us all. The the end of that statement is they robbed themselves and all their descendants of these gifts. Now, this opens a whole new door on a level of doctrine that we haven't discussed thus far. This opens the door on the doctrine of federal headship, which states that Adam was not simply an example that we need not follow, but he is our federal head. Adam, before God, Adam represented all of mankind. He was and still is the head of the human race. If Adam had kept the law of God, then all of his descendants would have enjoyed life. But when he failed, he took us down with him. Now, last week we looked at Romans 5, and we learned that in some mysterious way, the sin of Adam has resulted in a universal corruption of humanity. Again, that's spelling out this idea of federal headship. And Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, that is the flagship passage where federal headship is spelled out. In it, we learn that God has appointed two federal heads for mankind, Adam and Jesus. And we're going to focus in on Adam's part in all this. And I want to look at Romans 5 with you again. Romans 5, 12 says this, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So that's what we understand to have happened. Sin entered into the world through the one man that we know as Adam. And death was the consequence of that sin. So the, the, the scriptures say sin came into the world through one man and death came into the world through that sin. But then it goes on and it says this, and so death spread to all men 
because all sinned. Now that phrase, all men, and because all sinned, that's a pretty strong statement. It's a statement helping us to understand that in the economy of God, God looked at Adam as a representative of all of humanity. And when Adam sinned, he didn't just introduce sin into the world. No, no, no. He introduced sin into human nature such that everyone that followed him have sinned. They are guilty of that sin. Romans 5.19 says this, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. They were made to be sinners. Now let's talk about that. Let's, pe- let's take that apart for a second. Because of Adam's sin, all humans are born with a nature that is predisposed to sin, inclined to rebellion, unable to do the good that God requires of us. But that's not all. Because of Adam's sin, we are born with a nature that is sinful, but we are also bearing the original guilt of Adam's sin. Listen to a few more of those verses from Romans 5. Look at Romans 5, verse 15. Many died through one man's trespass. Verse 17. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Now, those are all strong terms. And what it's trying to help us understand is that we not only bear the nature of sin inherited from Adam, but we also inherit the condemnation, the guilt that Adam caused, that Adam brought about. Dale Van Dyke, who is a writer for Table Talk magazine, he writes this, When we read through Romans 5, he says, In other words, you and I were born not merely with a corrupt nature, inclined towards all evil, but with real, imputed, that is, credited to our account, guilt before the law of God under the sentence of condemnation and consequent reign of death. So what is he saying there? Well, here's what he's saying. Death is the consequence, the sentence of guilt that was passed on from Adam to his children. Condemnation, that strong term, is the sentence of judgment that was passed from Adam to his children. Why would we be under condemnation unless the guilt of sin was also credited to our account? I take all of this to mean, and so does the Heidelberg, that we didn't simply inherit Adam's nature. We also inherited Adam's guilt. Once again, this is the bad news that will in the end make the good news all the more good. All right, so question number 10. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? The answer is certainly not. He is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, that's a key phrase there, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared... Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In Adam, we have broken the law and are guilty as sinners before God. In our life now, we continue to show our connection with Adam and sin personally, times without number. God is angry with that sin, all of it. And the Bible lets us know that his just wrath against the sin of mankind is building and it will be unleashed. 
We, we also see evidence of God's just wrath in the world today. You can look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. And you see that in some cases, the wrath of God is revealed simply because God gives a people over. God um, removes His spirit of restraint upon a culture, and that, that culture is allowed by God's restraining power to indulge in all kinds of wickedness. And honestly, that's what we see happening today in our culture and in society all over the world, that God's hand of protection has been removed, and in many ways we are just indulging in sin all the more. That's an evidence of God's wrath being present in the world today. The fact that every single one of us will die that's also evidence of God's wrath. The judgment of our sin is still being poured out today. But Heidelberg says, but we also have this other thing, this fearful expectation, not only of God's judgment now, but God's judgment in eternity. The entire world will see the wrath of God displayed in the future. And all of this reminds us that we're still under the curse, right? The curse of sin, Adam's and ours, it still hangs over all those human beings who are still in Adam, those for whom Adam is still their only representative head. But wait, wait, let's ask another question. Isn't God merciful? That's question 11. Isn't God merciful? The answer is yes. Here's the answer. God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty, be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment, body, and soul. Now, when we hear the bad news of our connection with Adam, the sin nature and the guilt that we bear, one of the first things that we hope to hear is some good news, right? Then like the catechism, we remember, oh yes, isn't God merciful? Yeah, yeah, He is merciful. Isn't He the type of God that shows mercy and grace? Yes, He is but not at the expense of his justice. Let me explain it this way. As the judge of all the earth, as the righteous ruler of all mankind, and the one to whom all of us must answer, for God to fail in punishing a single sin would be an injustice. For God to let one sin slide for one person, it would then be an injustice for him to punish every sin of, of another person. Therefore, the Bible tells us that every sin ever committed will receive a just penalty. Even the smallest sin will not go unpunished, because our God is an infinitely and perfectly just God. So what does that mean? Well, for those men and women who are born and who live and who die under the headship of Adam, they will pay the price for their sin by enduring the punishment of body and soul in eternity. The Bible calls this hell. But for those men and women who are born, live, and then are born again by faith in Christ, we have a new federal head. We have a new representative before God. And now I'm going to go back to Romans 5 again, where we see the Apostle Paul compare the totality of Adam's failure with the totality of Christ's success. In verse 18, he says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and we know what that means. Sin led to death, and we are all under the condemnation or the declaration of guilt with deserving of God's wrath. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
That one act of righteousness is the action of Jesus on the cross. Just as all the guilt and consequence of Adam's sin were imputed to our account, so too were all of Jesus' righteous acts and eternal life imputed to the account of all those who trust in him. You see, Adam's guilt was on us before we ever committed a personal act of sin, and all of Jesus' righteousness has been credited to us when we believe. This means that for those in Adam, their sin will be punished in eternity, but for those in Christ, our sin was already punished in his crucifixion and death on the cross. Therefore, all sin has and or will be punished. But praise be to God that Jesus has come to be our representative head. He came to live the perfectly sinless life that we can never hope to live. He came to die in our place, atoning for our sins, paying the debt of our sin in full. And he has sent his spirit into our hearts to bring us from death to life. And in him, all of our sins have been paid, covered by his atoning blood. We are forgiven. We are his. Praise God that the bad news that we learned about over the last few weeks leads to such glorious good news in Christ. Now, I know this has been rich and there's a lot of doctrine here, but I hope that it's been helpful and I hope that you will join me again next week as we move on to the next section, Lord's Day 5, where I'm going to focus in on questions 12, 13, 14, and 15. If you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at cbcwiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you for listening.